Hear this from the word of God. This is Acts chapter 4, beginning at verse 23. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people. They reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up, the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand and heal your and heal uh, to heal, sorry, and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. How you respond to persecution or trials likely is the greatest indicator of your faith. How you respond to persecution or to trials likely is the greatest indicator of the depth of your faith. When persecution comes your way, when you and a teacher at high school or a professor at university or college are at odds, and they don't want you to write what you're writing because you're coming from a Christian perspective, what do you do? When you and your employer are at odds about something and they don't want you to adhere to your Christian values or morals, what do you do? When you're at odds with whoever it may be, a neighbor, a friend, and it's in conflict with what God has said, who God is, and your Christian values or morals, what do you do? And I'd like to suggest that what you do in those moments is the largest indication, single indication, of the depth of your faith, of how well you actually walk with the Lord, of what it looks like for you to actually be Christian. We live in a privileged day. Most of us, at least in this day, aren't going to face persecution in our land in any way that the apostles did in their day. That day may come in our land, but it's not here today. We may face ridicule. We may face mockery. We might even face loss of jobs. But to this day, we're not facing seizure of property or resources, bank accounts being frozen. We're not facing any, any form of imprisonment or types of torture for our faith, let alone death. Peter and John had healed a man. In Acts chapter 3, they had come alongside of a man who was born lame, and they healed him. And in his healing, they were questioned. And then after their questioning, they were thrown into prison for more questioning. And after the questioning, they are released. And upon their release, there's a prayer. And we're going to look at that prayer today. I'd like to suggest this. Living for God, especially in the face of opposition should lead both to the exaltation of and a greater dependence on him. If you note first, it says on their release, Peter and John went back to their own people. So they gather there with the other believers. We don't know how many. Was it just the apostles? Were there a larger number? All we know is that there are other believers that are there that they've gathered. They reported 
all that the chief priests and elders said to them. Well, what did the chief priests and elders say to them? We find that in Acts 3.18. They called them, that's Peter and John, in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. So they call in Peter and John and say, listen, we're going to let you go. But you are no longer allowed to speak or act, teach at all in the name of, of Jesus. That's what they commanded them. So Peter and John go back. They're with their people and they report this. And this is what happened. When they heard this, they raised their voices together. Now in the Greek, it's singular um, in terms of, of, of voice. And so does this mean that this is one voice and others gathered together in unity as if when one of us is praying, all of us are kind of praying with that person? Or did they pray together in this united form without any notes like we're going to put up on the screen later? I don't know. The scripture doesn't say whether or not the Spirit of God led them together or whether they were joining together in a prayer. But together they prayed. And they start off with Sovereign Lord. They see God's sovereign hand even in the persecution they're facing. They don't think God has fallen off his throne. They don't believe he's somehow not sovereign. They don't in any way mistake this as a mistake. They're like, this is God's hand. Sovereign Lord. They, they appeal to the lordship and the sovereignty of God, which is the highest court of appeal. There's no higher place to go. You can't go to the you know, Supreme Court or Superior Court of Ontario or the Supreme Court of Canada as a higher court. God's sovereign throne room is the highest court. So sovereign Lord, you made the heavens, the earth, and the sea. So they remind that you made reminds us that God is creator. So you see you made here reminding us God is creator. Then verse 25, you spoke by the Holy Spirit through our father David. The you spoke reminds us that God reveals. So we have here in the text as they begin to pray, a reminder that God has made and a reminder that God has revealed, that he's spoken. And then they quote from Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? The people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth rise up. Rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. This is, if you read Jewish literature, this is a messianic psalm. So it's one of the psalms that the Jewish people believed were messianic, talked about the Messiah. And here in this one specifically, it talks about how this anointed one, people, kings, and rulers will band against the Lord and against his anointed one. And so as they're saying this, they're sharing scripture. Because the word of God is what was guiding them. The word of God is what they relied on. The word of God is what they trusted. James Boyce, commentator and pastor of years ago, passed away maybe 10 or 12 years ago now, wrote this. Prayer is our talking to God. The scriptures are God's talking to us. And the two always go together. You pray in a right way when you pray scripturally. You study the scriptures in a right way when you study prayerfully. That's what the church was doing. If you take away the Bible, if we remove the Bible from our faith, if we just eliminated it, what would we know about God? Oh, from nature, we might be able to surmise his incomparably great power, but we'd know nothing of the Trinity. We'd know nothing of the resurrection. We'd know nothing of, of other accounts in terms of, 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 of God's character and being and nature. We'd know nothing of the incarnation. We'd know very little about God if you took the Bible away. 
And so the people in that day were devoted to Scripture. And in being so, as part of their prayer, they're quoting from the second psalm. I was in a conversation with someone earlier this week. I went for lunch with someone, uh, someone who's been a believer for a number of years, doesn't attend here. And as he and I were in this conversation at lunch, and we were having uh, a talk about areas in his Christianity where he made some shifts, I began to appeal to the Bible. I went to the scriptures and said, let's look at the Bible. And they said to me, Dwayne, there's no sense in going there. I don't view the Bible the same way you do anymore. And so you can appeal to the Bible if you want, but I actually appeal to how I feel about things now. So if, I, if it feels good for me, if it feels right, then I'm going to accept it. I'm going to think it's right. If it feels good, I'm going to be okay with it. That's where a lot of people have landed now. That's where a lot of people have ended up. Verse 27. Indeed, Herod, Pontius Pilate, they met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. Now note that. That's really important. Herod is a half-Jew, Pontius Pilate a Roman. The Gentiles obviously are non-Jewish people. And then all of Israel, or the people of Israel, which are Jewish people. And they conspired against the holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. So this is reminiscent of the second psalm. They, they take the second psalm, and when the Jewish people would have read the second psalm, they would have assumed the kings of the earth and the rulers that banded together against the Lord and his anointed one would have all been non-Jewish. When you're a Jewish person reading that psalm, you would have just been under the assumption all the people going against the Lord, all the people going against the anointed one are non-Jewish people. But here, in this prayer, we find something very different. We have a half-Jew, a Roman, non-Jewish, and Jewish. And in the prayer, you see that it's all of them together, coming together, conspiring together against the holy servant. Again, as they're praying this, the servant psalms, or, or the, uh, the servant songs, S-O-N-G-S, not psalms, um, from Isaiah would have come to mind. There's four servant songs in Isaiah. And it's against Jesus, the anointed one. And then verse 28, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. So the one thing is true. They did it. The other thing is true. God decided it. And those two truths always run simultaneously. Nothing happens outside of God's control. God is never caught off guard. But free agents, human beings, still do things. And we still choose to sin. And we still choose at times to do what is evil. And so you have both here happening. So they not only appeal to God's sovereignty, sovereign Lord, but they live it out. Not only do they appeal to it, but they're, they're under God's sovereign control. They're like, God, we know that these people did this. We know you're the sovereign Lord, and we know that your power and will decided that all of this would happen beforehand. That you decided also reminds us that God is in charge of history. Now, this is a fascinating prayer, isn't it? How do you pray for those that persecute you? How do you pray for those that are against you? I mean, some people pray for their obliteration. God, destroy my enemies. Some people pray for the removal of the persecution. God, keep me from being persecuted. This is the first persecution account of the church. John and Peter being thrown in prison. And they know this is going to be the first of many. That just as Jesus was treated, so they will be. 
And they don't pray for the obliteration of their enemies. They don't pray for their demise. They don't pray that they be destroyed. And they don't pray that they somehow avoid persecution. They don't pray any of that. Instead, this is what they pray. Lord, consider their threats. Enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Wow. God, would you help us to speak your word, the truth, with great boldness? God, in the, in the midst of this persecution, would you help us to be faithful to your word? God, would you not help us to be cowards when it comes to declaring your word, but by your spirit, would you enable us to have great boldness? Would you enable us to have great boldness when we're talking to our neighbor who's antagonistic toward Christian things? Would you help us to have great boldness when we're engaged with a professor who's anti-faith and anti-Christian? Would you help us to have great boldness when we're in the midst of some conversation with friends or family, whoever it would be, maybe over Christmas, who've walked away from the faith, abandoned the faith, or never accepted the faith? God, would you be with us and grant us great boldness? Enable your, spirit, your servants to speak with great boldness. Back in 1955, Billy Graham was speaking in Cambridge, and he was doing a series of meetings. And Billy Graham decided when he'd speak in Cambridge that he would try to speak intellectually to the Cambridge crowd. And so he began to engage in conversation with the Cambridge crowd, speaking intellectually. And he spoke for several nights. And the first several nights of the Cambridge uh, meetings, literally no one came to faith in Christ. No one's heart was changed. No one's life was changed. There was Billy Graham, greatest respect for Billy Graham, not an intellectual, giant of a Christian man, godly man, loved Jesus deeply. And he decided on the last night to throw out all of that with his southern drawl from the States and just preach the blood of Jesus to all of the Cambridge students. And that last night, you can read this, 400 of those students at that meeting, hearing their need for salvation and the accomplished work of Christ, 400 students gave their lives to Jesus. My understanding, it was over 250 of them then that went on to full-time Christian ministry and work. Because what we need is Jesus. What we need is Christ. I mean, I can have all the intellectual arguments I want as to why I don't believe the universe can exist without a prime mover. And I don't mind engaging in conversation with someone about that. I can have all the intellectual arguments I want about why I believe this book is unique among any other book in the world and why I believe that the Bible in and of itself is God's word revealed to us and how it's unique to any other book you want to study, the Koran, Hindu writings, Buddhist writings, anything else you can compare it to. Nothing compares to the uniqueness of the word of God because it's God's word to us. And I have whole talks on how to defend that. But none of that saves anyone the power of God's spirit with the preaching of the word or the declaring of the word as you engage in conversation with someone where someone's heart by God's spirit is brought to a quickening and understanding of their need for a savior, their repentance of sin, and their turning from it. That's what saves someone. What saves someone is the fact that we are able to clearly declare the gospel itself, our need for Jesus. And as we declare our need for Jesus for others, people recognize by God's spirit and enabling their need for him as well. Now that's just the first part of the prayer. 
Enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Note the second part. And stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. I'd said earlier in the book of Acts that the miraculous signs and wonders typically are performed in two types of situations. The one is this, to alleviate suffering. Someone's lame, they're healed again. Someone's blind, they're able to see again. The other at times is in, in times of trouble, the Red Sea parting for God's people to go through on dry land. But almost always in Scripture, the miraculous is around the alleviation of trouble or the alleviation of suffering. And often when we think of those that persecute us, we wish God's worst upon them. Often when we think of those that are persecuting us, we actually would like God to obliterate them. Oh, we may not pray it, but we think it. And they're the last people we'd ever want God to save. Oh, we may not ever say that. Never may that flow from our lips. But it's actually what we believe. We don't want them to be saved. And often we actually think they're too far gone to be saved. And here what they pray is this. God, would you enable us to preach the word faithfully, boldly? And would you stretch out your hand to heal? Who are they asking God to heal? Well, they're not asking God to heal each other, although there are times in Scripture where that happens. In this moment, in this prayer, they're asking God to heal their very enemies. They're asking God to show up with signs and wonders to authenticate the gospel by healing the very people that are persecuting them. The man who was lame that they granted, that they granted the ability um, that they healed, uh, John and Peter, he wasn't part of the Christian church. He was begging at the gate. They're asking for prayer that as they engage their very enemies, that God would heal some of them so that it would authenticate the preaching of the word. Is that not powerful? It's the very opposite of how often we react to suffering. So often we react to suffering by wanting God to smite our enemies, wanting God to hurt our enemies. I mean, at very least, not wanting God to save our enemies. And they're praying the very opposite. God, would you save? God, would you grant us boldness and declaration of the word? And God, would you be pleased to stretch out your hand and heal by the power of Jesus through his name, your holy servant, so that it would authenticate the gospel? Listen to this. It'll be on the screen. The opposition Jesus faced, it extended to the community he formed. That shouldn't surprise us, should it? That the opposition Jesus faced extends to us. Who face that opposition not by praying that their opponents be crushed, nor that they escape the persecution, but rather that they be empowered to point their persecutors to Jesus and that he would authenticate their message through miracles of mercy. You don't need to be consumed with God taking care of you because he already has. You see, Jesus here has already taken care of us. So often as Christians, we're concerned about us. It's me being persecuted. It's me being hurt. It's, it's all self-centered. And what happens in that, in our consumption with us, we act as if God hasn't already taken care of us. This morning, if you're a Christian, this morning, if you're a believer, here is the good news. God's taking care of you. In Christ, God is taking care of your greatest need, your need of a Savior. In Christ, God has looked after your greatest problem, your problem of separation from him. Him. 
God has chosen to adopt you into his family. He's chosen to forgive you of your sin. He's chosen to welcome you in as a son or daughter. He's chosen to grant you life. Is that not good news? And so often we act as if the greatest thing God can do for us now, this genie of a God or genie in a lamp God that we want, is because we think he hasn't really taken care of us. God sent his son so that he could be crushed and go to the horror of hell on the cross so you never need be crushed and never need to experience hell. Jesus experienced a separation when he cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus experienced a forsakenness that no believer ever needs experience because what does God say? I am with you always to the very end of the age. Is that not good news? And so because that's true, he's already taken care of us. So the believers know that, and they're like, man, would we pray the word more faithfully? Man, would we, God, would you show up with your hand? And would you heal, would you just mercifully heal to authenticate in the name of Jesus that you are powerfully here? So reminiscent of Philippians 1 for me where Paul's put in prison. And when Paul's put in prison, they put him in prison for two reasons. To stop him from declaring the gospel and to discourage others from doing what Paul was doing, declaring the gospel. I spent the first few years of my ministry helping out once a week in the local detention center. I would go in and specifically work with young adults. And I'd go in and work with them. And after the first, uh, after the first year or so of working with them, the Ministry of Education decided that the juveniles in the detention center could receive credit for my teaching. Now, I was teaching the Bible, uh, but I started with four or five. I ended up with every single young adult that was juvenile into the detention center over here on Barton Street in the room with me. So I'd go in, I'd just teach scripture for a couple of hours with them, and then I'd, I'd uh, go out, but they'd have to do some assignments, and they'd actually get credit, high school credit, for being a part of this. It's an incredible system, to be honest. So one day I'm going in, and the guards come, and they say, hey, we've decided we're going to go in with you. I'm like, why? And uh, I said, are you worried about what I'm teaching? They said, not at all. We're, we realize that when you're in there, there's no one out here. It's just us, the guards. And we thought last week, what if they took you hostage? Like, what if they just took you hostage, and, and, and we had to lock down the whole prison, and you're stuck in this room with them, and they were threatening to kill you if we didn't? I'm like, yeah, you guys can send in as many guards as you want. That's fine. And when I was there with them, some of these young guys, now these are you know, 14 to 17-year-olds typically, 13 to 17-year-olds, would come up to me and tell me that they were wrongly incarcerated. They would feel that the justice system had done them wrong. I'd say, I remember this conversation. One guy, I'd say, tell me what you did. He said, well, I, I slit my girlfriend's throat. I'm like, you did what? He's like, yeah. But he said, I don't deserve to be here. She cheated on me. So she deserved it. I'm like, actually, you do deserve to be here. And she didn't deserve that. Another guy, right, comes up to me, well, I don't deserve to be here. I'm like, why don't you deserve to be here? Well, you know, I, I was stealing from a gas station attendant. Uh, you know, he kind of stood up to stop me, and I, and I just kind of pummeled the guy until he was left unconscious on the ground and took the money and ran. But had he not stood up to me, he would have been fine. So I don't deserve to be here. I'm like, actually, I don't agree with you. You do deserve to be here, and you should be incarcerated. So they put people in jail for these two reasons, to stop them from doing what they're doing and to discourage other people from doing what they're doing. In Philippians 1, Paul says what? what? The whole palace guard and everyone else knows I'm in chains for Christ. Paul says, I want you to know this. To the very heights of now the palace, people now have heard the gospel. Paul saw his imprisonment as a new opportunity to share the gospel. 
He saw his imprisonment as a new opportunity to tell other people about the gospel because you can't stop God. So Paul saw this as a new audience. But you also put someone in prison to discourage other people from doing what they were doing. And Paul says, most of the brothers and sisters in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. So not only did it not stop them, but now with a greater boldness, they're sharing Christ with people all around them. Times of suffering will reveal what is foundational to your relationship with God. Times of suffering, times of trial will reveal to you how deep your relationship with God truly is. Like, are you only a Christian because God offers some genie and Atlantic benefits? And when those genie and Atlantic benefits no longer are yours, do you walk away from him? Daryl Bach says this, commentator that I read, this prayer is an expression of complete dependence on God, a recognition of his sovereignty, a call for God's justice and oversight in the midst of opposition for the enablement of mission and for the working of his power to show that God is behind the preaching of the name uh, of Jesus in healing and signs. And verse 31. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God boldly. Did you note that? That as they prayed, as they prayed this prayer together, the place was shaken. The place was shaken, but they weren't. Why? Tim Keller says this. The place was shaken, but they were not. Jesus was shaken to pieces on the cross so that you could be unshakable. You see, on the cross, on the cross, Jesus himself was shaken by the Father as the Son became our sin and the Father's wrath was poured out upon him. And on the cross, in essence, Jesus was disintegrated. Jesus on the cross was shaken to death as the wrath of the Father was poured out on him. It, it wasn't the crucifixion that killed him. You know that, right? Jesus gave up his spirit, the Bible tells us. He actually chose to give his spirit up. It was the wrath of the Father poured out upon him that killed him. That's what was killing him on the cross. That he would absorb our sin. That he would take our punishment. That he would die in our stead. And the reason that they weren't shaken when the room was, was because they were now in this unshakable place because they were secure in Christ. Is that not good news? This morning, if you're a believer, you're secure in Christ. And God's spirit is in you. When it says that they were filled with the Holy Spirit, it doesn't mean that the Spirit left them and came back. The Spirit was in them. But there are times in our lives when our reliance upon the Spirit has waned. And God's Spirit specifically and purposely fills us so that as we speak and as we go forth and as we serve, we feel and know that we're serving with His words in His strength by His power. We know it's not us. We know it is Him. It's His filling in us. And He longs to fill His believers over and over and over again. When D.L. Moody, great preacher of yesteryear, was going up to a platform to preach one day, and he was, he was praying, may I be filled by the Spirit, Holy Spirit, fill me, may I be filled by the Spirit, Holy Spirit, fill me, one of the reporters stopped him and said, Moody, why are you praying that? I mean, you're a man who relies and preaches and teaches about the Holy Spirit. And D.L. Moody was a big man, and he said, I'm praying it because I leak. Praying it because I leak. And that's what happens. We live out our days sometimes grieving and quenching God's spirit and we need him to fill us once again. That's what the believers are praying. Oh God, would you fill me? Oh God, would you speak through me? Oh God, would you allow me not to obliterate my enemies, 
not to avoid the persecution, but rather to walk right out into the midst of it. And God, as I do so, to declare your word boldly. And God, as I do that, would you stretch out your hand? And would you heal with signs and wonders? Because it's by the name of Jesus that you choose to do that. The reliance of God, this is Daryl Bach again, and the resting in God's, in, in God's justice, the willingness to suffer persecution, the desire to preach Jesus, and the call to God to show himself, they are all signs of a healthy community. So it's, it's a community that begins to trust in God's justice, a community that's willing to suffer persecution for him, a community that's boldly willing to declare Jesus where God shows up. And he shows up so much that Paul's going to talk about this next week. But what happens? Not only are the people not concerned about their safety, but they're not secure about their security. In the next few verses, they begin to take their money. They begin to take extra land that they have. And that land would have been their retirement savings. That land would have been their investments. And they begin to take it and they lay it at the apostles' feet so that it can be used for the furtherance of God's kingdom and the declaration of the word to the glory of God. Because they realize that their security isn't in their investments. Their security is in Jesus Christ. Now please, I'm not saying you shouldn't have any investments. I'm just saying that when God's powerful spirit so grabs a hold of your life that you will be emboldened to preach God's word fearlessly and you will see what you have as his in such a way that when he needs it for ministry in any way, you just bring it to his feet and say it's yours. Because it's his. He gave it to you. He granted it to you. And so we're going to close this service in prayer. We're going to ask God to be with us. You know, when I was preparing this, I thought, God, what if when we prayed, you chose to shook this place? And then I thought selfishly, God, not too much. It's a new building. So if you shook this place, could you shake it a little bit? And, uh, and then I thought, well, we've got insurance. And so if you shook it a lot, we could make an insurance claim. And I could say on the claim, we prayed. God shook. Please fix the damage. Um, and they would not know what to do with that. And maybe it would allow us a chance to declare the word of God boldly. To let them know that our God is real. That our God is alive. That he exists. But if you're like me, I need prayer that God will allow me to declare his word boldly. Because it's easy in our day to find ourselves shrinking back, even in moments where doors are open. Because all of a sudden they're challenging what we think and what God has said about morality. They're challenging what we think and what God has said about him being the way, the truth, the life. They're challenging what we think because God has said it about his existence, about the way he'd have us live our lives. And we end up in these conversations, we're like, oh, I don't want to go there, I don't want to do that. No, we declare the word boldly. And we cry out, God, would you also show up with the stretching of your hand and heal in such a way that we would see signs and wonders, that, God, you would choose to authenticate that you're here with us as we're declaring your word so that people around us, agnostic, atheist, other faiths, who right now are doubting who you are, that they would actually turn to you and believe. What would you do if God showed up like that this week? What would happen if after us praying this this morning, we found out that five people from our church experienced that this week, and next week we didn't even have a service. I had to cancel Pastor Paul's preaching because person after person after person could get up and give testimony of the bold declaration of the word of God because they were filled with the Spirit and miraculous signs and wonders because Jesus still heals to this day. What would it look like if that's what happened? I'm not saying that would happen for everyone all the time, but I am saying that we have denormalized something that God chooses to do because he's powerful and great and mighty. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray. So I'm going to turn to these next two slides. The first is this. 
We want you to exalt the name of the Lord. We want you to just take a few minutes right now. And like they did, they exalted God. When Peter and Paul came out of the persecution, Peter and, and sorry, John came out of the persecution, the first thing they did was they just exalted God. So I want you to take a minute and just exalt God. Lift his name up for his character, for grace in his life, for the work he's done. Do you know this year between the Koran congregation and our congregation, we'll have baptized 18 people. We have baptisms coming up again in a few weeks. 18 people, some of whom have grown up in the church and are, 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 are becoming a part of our ministry and being baptized, and some of whom literally a year and a half ago did not know who the Lord was, and God has radically saved. And in God saving them, they're being baptized to declare that God is my Savior. He is my hope. He is my light. He is my life. And that's something to celebrate, isn't it? A few, on, uh, on Wednesday night, our elders were praying. Tim was in Ottawa uh, but we pray once a month together and we meet once a month together for business. And as we were gathering for prayer, we were just talking about God's provision, this recent half million dollar gift. Other gifts that have come in since then to match it. We've had about $150,000 since that time come in to match it. There's other uh, gifts in the, in the working that people are talking to us about. And as we were talking about Andrew, whose faith I've always appreciated and always loved and, and admired and looked up to, we were talking, Andrew was even saying as he was signing this big mortgage for $2.8 million, he was like, Lord, like, I hope we know what we're doing here. And, and, and in the middle of that, God's provided. Just in powerful ways, God has shown up and provided. And we can thank God for his provision. I mean, his salvation and work in people's lives, his provision. There must be things you've seen in your life that you can say, God, I thank you for this. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to take a moment. And just ask God, not ask God, just exalt God. Just say, God, I exalt you for this. God, I praise you for this. Just take a moment and do that. You can say it out loud. You can say it silently on your own. And then in a moment, we're going to flip to a slide. I'll say amen. And we're going to say a prayer together. Would you take a moment right now and just thank God, exalt God for who he is and what he's done.